So some of that, I don't know if you can relate to, but some of that I've, I've, I've actually had those thoughts in prayer circles. Um, I think sometimes when we talk about prayer, prayer is a little tricky. And I think maybe it doesn't have to be tricky. Because last week we talked about how simple it is, but it gets tricky at least when we try to explain it and we start to analyze it. I think it is multifaceted. I think it is textured. It's deep. But it is totally simple. That's the truth. We talked about that last week, about whose presence we're coming into. That was part of the fasting message. If we truly came with hearts that were consciously preparing to talk to Christ, our Redeemer, the Comforter, and the Creator of the universe, how would our hearts come? Fasting is that kind of thing that wakens up our spiritual self so that we're ready to come before God in submission and hearing exactly what God has to tell us. And we come like that, we come humbly, and we come in awe. But it's also simple. We don't have to have all the right words. Just coming from the heart is important. And I think, particularly in prayer, when I think about simplicity and humility, I think maybe when you put those things together, the new adjective that we have when we just describe prayer, the most important thing is just honesty. Just coming before God, honestly recognizing who he is, the triune God, and honestly recognizing who I am and what's in my heart. If we do that, we'll come into a Father's presence who knows our desires, who knows our hopes, who knows our fears. He knows us. We can be honest. But then we also know him. He will do everything to protect us as his children, just like a father would die for his family. But it's more than that. He'll protect us even more. He's a father that gave his own son to protect you and me. And that's something I will never, ever truly understand in this lifetime. But it's also a love that I get glimpses of when I come to him with an open and honest heart. I see the beauty of that love. I can talk with the creator of the universe, and I'm in awe. I can talk with the comforter, and he helps me walk through this life. I can talk to the redeemer, and I'm grateful for the blood. I'm grateful that I can talk in my finite language, with my finite ideas, with my finite love, and express all that to my infinite God. I'm grateful for the simplicity that God expresses towards me, and when I take that all in context and I experience his love firsthand, I'm humbled. And when we talk about experiencing God's love firsthand, I think this is one of the primary ways that it happens, through prayer. God affirms for me all the time in prayer that he loves me, and he tells me that I am his beautiful child, and that truly is awesome. I think the main thing when we talk about prayer, the main purpose of prayer is dialogue. It's a dialogue with God. Yes, dialogue about what is going on in your life, the joys, the sorrows, of course. We have a whole book called Lamentations. We have a whole book, Psalms. And a lot of those are prayers where they're crying out to God, God, where are you? But then God also shows up and they rejoice in his faithfulness and his nearness. So yes, of course. One of the ways that I think 
If you're coming there here this morning, you want to understand prayer a whole lot better. Doesn't matter where you are in your prayer life. If you're new to this journey or trying to figure out what the whole thing's about or if you've been praying for a while, start praying through the Psalms. Start on this prayer journey through the Psalms. It will change how you pray. One of the things that struck me as I did study the Psalms and started praying through the Psalms is the context in which they were written. David wrote a bunch of them. And when you start comparing the actual daily stuff, the history of what David is writing in his life, how he's praying, it became really evident to me that David is in dialogue with God. Something happens and David writes a psalm. He's talking back and forth with God. Well, then I started looking at other major figures in the Bible. And I discovered something. Over the course of their life, in history, you can see them in this dialogue with God. Where should we go, God? What should we do? Moses is a good example of that. He's always asking God, what's next? Where are we going? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Abraham, they all are in dialogue with God. One of my favorites is Abraham. It's because it's honest. It's really honest. It relates to my life. So here's the outline. Abraham is going along, and God comes to him in Genesis 12, 3, and he makes a promise to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, you know what? I'm going to bless you and bless your family so that all the people, all the nations will be blessed through you. And what that promise is, that's the Abrahamic covenant, and basically it's setting up the nation of Israel. God's going to build a great nation in the Old Testament, and through that nation, Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, is going to come. How is he going to do that? What do you need for a great nation? Well, you need people. So Abraham is a little bit older. Sarah's a little bit older. And they actually tell us that Sarah is barren. But Abraham moves through this whole thing in dialogue with God. And you see from 12 up to 15, he has doubt. He has questions. And you trace Abraham throughout his life. Yes, he messes up. He goes to Egypt. He tries to take things in his own hands. Life gets hard. He doubts. But he's always in dialogue with God. And what's really cool is in Genesis 15, Abraham is questioning God's promise. How can you do this? I'm not going to have an heir. Isaac is never going to come. God is not going to happen. I'm going to have to have this servant of mine be the heir. And God says, that's not going to happen, Abraham. Come outside. Look at the stars. And if you can count the stars, that's what my promise is to you. There's something in that moment that is simple and beautiful and very intimate, looking at the stars and God's promise. Abraham has doubt, and that's okay. Abraham believes at that moment in Genesis 15, and that's what is credited to him as righteousness in Hebrews and on and on. He's the hero of faith. The point is, Abraham's such an encouragement to me because I can see firsthand the dialogue. And Abraham was filled with doubt. I'm filled with doubt all the time. Faith, prayer, is not the absence of doubt. It's in spite of our doubt, having the courage to trust God's promises and step out of our own little stories into God's larger redemptive story. That is dialogue with God. That's the prayer life. It's outlined right there. And I've seen this pattern repeated over and over and over again in the Bible. Yes, prayer is multifaceted. We pray to worship God, to praise him, to sing hallelujah, to repent our sins, to thank him for his goodness. And of course, we pray in petition. 
for many things. Of course we do. But our prayer life doesn't stay there. The big pattern in the Bible is this constant dialogue with God about where to go to next. Here's the thing. As you go deeper in your faith and you continue to pray through things, sometimes something in your heart will transform. Your heart starts becoming more like God's heart. You start wanting the things that God wants. To me, that's what the prayer life is all about. It's not a mistake that you were created uniquely, that you have spiritual gifts, that you have talents, that you have things that really speak to your heart, that you're passionate about, that you have desires. That's all God putting into you. And what happens is you begin to realize there's this larger story, and how can I step into that? That's the calling in your life. God made you for a reason. We're called to step out of our story into his. Prayer life is you and God working out what is next for his larger story. It's the calling on your life. And God's calling on your life is very real. There's something God wants you to step into. Step into so that others can see his love. That's how people see God. Through human beings living in the midst of their calling. In the midst of God's will. And I want to clarify something this morning about calling. Because this morning, I'm postulating that this is what prayer life is all about. So I want to be really clear because there are a lot of ideas about calling. And I understand the concept that sometimes gets distorted, the context where we are right now. Sometimes when we think of calling, we isolate it to missionaries, right? I know who I am. I was a missionary to outer Mongolia. I'm the outreach pastor here. So some of you are thinking right now, oh man, this is the last guy I want to speak to me about calling, yeah? Because look at what God did to him. (laughs) I can almost guarantee you that that will not happen for you. Almost, okay? But let me say this as bluntly as I can. I'm not talking about professional ministry. Not at all. That is not the calling that we're talking about. Just because that's not the case, just because God is not calling you to a geographic location, don't short-circuit the process. When I was in Mongolia, someone from the national office came over and visited us. And there were about probably a dozen missionaries at the time, and we were sitting in this expat restaurant in Ulaanbaatar, which is the capital of Mongolia. And it was the dead of winter. Mongolia still burns coal as one of its major energy sources to heat. If you've been to Mongolia in the winter, there's no way to really accurately describe it. The air is so full of coal smoke that I could not see probably out that... If we were outside, probably couldn't see 100 meters. That's how thick it is. So it's like a post-apocalyptic kind of setting. When you live in that kind of... Weather, when you're breathing in that smoke all the time, for six months out of the year, things start to happen with your health. Some missionaries were struggling with their health, but more importantly, some of the kids of the missionaries were getting sick. And this person from the national office just honestly said, what will it take for you to be released from Mongolia? Your kids are getting sick. What will it take for you to be released from this calling? And I watched everyone go around the room and say, you know what? We are called to Mongolia. 
We are here no matter what. And there was a disconnect for me because, I, again, I was the last one. And when it came time for me to answer, I had two kids, Georgia and Joseph. And my answer to that was, if anything happens to Georgia and Joseph, we're out of here. Calling is not just limited to the horizontal. There's freedom to move around horizontally within the will of God. I can be a missionary in Outer Mongolia and be in his will, or I can come back here and be a teacher in Mantanka or be the best father and husband to my family that I can be. That is my vocation as well. I am called to be a good husband and father. That's part of it, and that's the distinction between what we're talking about with the vertical and the horizontal. Don't short-circuit the process. We confuse this in our lives. The vertical is our relationship with God. The horizontal is how we live, what we're actually doing, and there's freedom in the horizontal. When we pray to God about his will, a lot of times we cheat the process. C.S. Lewis, if you've read Mere Christianity, really describes this well in the prayer life and what our hearts, where our hearts really are. He talks about our natural self, and there's this battle between the natural self and the divine. He talks about when we pray, we come to God like this, particularly in looking for God's will. We come to God and pray about his will like we're paying our taxes, like it's something we have to do, like it's our duty. And we pay our taxes, and we say, okay, God, I'm going to give you this part of my life, and I'll give you this, but in our hearts, we're hoping for that big refund so that our natural self, our destructive self, can still be satisfied. That's the flesh. That's the natural self, and that is not praying for God's will in our lives. We pray, but in our hearts, we're convinced that we know his will. In fact, in many cases, we tell God where we're going. We tell him what we're going to do without any input for him. We pray, we ask, but we never truly ask because we cut to the answer because we already know. And we do this for a couple different reasons. One of the big ones is because we think God's will on our lives and what we're doing and how we live it out is a one-and-done deal. Using my example, called to Mongolia a decade ago. If I was just to sit there and say, okay, I know God's will, I'm doing this, it was 10 years ago. I've seen this happen over and over again. People get so wrapped up in the task and what they're doing, and they stop asking or seeking God's will in the vertical, in the intimacy with God. And we start doing things of our own flesh and our own strength, and we get impatient, and that's when we fall. We do it for a couple different reasons. One of them is we're afraid. We're afraid of what God might say. And I think when we approach our faith journey in particular, we think about God's life, we think that we understand We want to do it. We want control. We're afraid of letting go of it because we don't know where God will take us. And that's one thing that we really want is control. We get like a little two-year-old, a toddler, when it comes like this. My daughter, Georgia, when she was two, I tried to help her put on her coat, tried to help her do whatever. And her response was, do it to self. Do it to self. She wanted to do everything on her own. She wanted that power. She wanted that control. And if you look back through the Old Testament all the way up to now, what we have and what we're talking about rebellion is the pride and the humanism that you see happen in the first 11 chapters all the way up to the Tower of Babel. And it's our rebellion. We don't want God's help. We want to do it ourselves. We want control. We want to operate our own flesh. We want credit. 
It's easier when we know what we're doing. I know what I want. I know how it should look. It's hard to trust God. We got the horizontal dimension figured out, so we tried to answer the vertical dimension, and in doing so, we are imposing our will on God. That's not prayer. But too often, the majority of our prayers are like that. Two things to remember this morning. We're talking about dialogue, not monologue. Dialogue. We're talking about honesty. Tell God what's on your heart. There's a really interesting contrast in the Old Testament. You guys remember Saul, the first king of Israel? He was doing pretty well. He was in God's will. He was anointed by God to be the first king of Israel. But what happens? What's his downfall? He starts relying on his own strength. He starts moving forward. He gets impatient, which, by the way, is kind of a litmus. If you are really operating impatiently in that horizontal realm and you think you're doing it and you think you're crucial and you think, you know what, this is not going to happen unless I'm part of it. What happens if I don't do it? It's going to go on without you. You're not that crucial. That's a lesson I've had to learn. But that's where Saul is going. He's doing everything in his own strength. And he's not inquiring to God at all. It's ironic because you know the Hebrew word for inquire of the Lord? Sha'al. It's Saul's name. David, on the other hand, you look at David. David is always inquiring of the Lord. There are passages in Samuel where he's saying, you know what, God, should I go after him? Should I pursue him? And God answers and said, yes, go after him. And he's like, okay. God is always inquiring of the Lord. He's always asking God, where do we go next together? David messes up. He messes up big time. He fails and he falls. But you know what? That's part of the dialogue too. Another little word, repentance. Do you know what repentance means? Literally translated, we're walking with God. We're walking with God in his will. We're doing the things with God. We're doing it hump. Or Sorry, that was Mongolian. <laughs> I just said Mongolian word. We're doing it together, side by side. And what happens? I start thinking about my own desires, and I go off on my own, and I fail, and I fall, and I sin. Repentance means literally turning back to God. And I turn back to God and say, God, I was off on my own. I'm coming back. Where are we going together? I'm ready. Let's go together. That's part of it. Failure will always be part of the dialogue because we are broken people. We are sinful people, and that's part of it, and that's okay. We turn back to God, and our will starts becoming his will again. It's a process. We talked about fasting when we started this series on prayer. Fasting is a way to open up our spiritual selves to start hearing the will of God. Waking our souls. Show me, God, what you care about so I can care about it too. A big part of that is inquiry. We have to ask. We don't answer. That's our tendency. We ask, we listen. This is a big part of the vertical dimension we're talking about. And if you get the vertical right, the horizontal will naturally follow. We worry too much about the horizontal. I know I do, and it's a control issue. But I want to look at Jesus this morning because we are blessed with the words of Jesus and specifically his prayers. There are numerous examples of Jesus in this dialogue-style relationship with God the Father. 
It's evidenced in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is presented in the Gospels as the ultimate example of engager with the Father. What is your will? What is your will, Father? And we begin by considering Jesus' high priestly prayer in John. John chapter 17. Note his petitions before the Father, hours before his crucifixion. It reads this. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who believe in me through their message that all of them may be one, Father, just as you and me, you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and I love them even as you have loved me. Regarding the vertical will of God, Jesus requested that our relationship with God would be like what he and the Father experienced in unbroken communion. May they also be in us, verse 21. And I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity, in verse 23. Don't fail to notice the astonishing result should Jesus' prayer be answered. In verse 21, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me, in verse 23. In other words, when we are the answer to the prayers of our Lord Jesus Christ, experience the same kind of vertical oneness with God that the Father and Son experienced in Jesus, this earthly existence, the world will come to know Christ as their Savior. Therefore, when we talk about moving with God, when we talk about the will of God, it is inseparably linked to the vertical intimacy with God, the Father. The converse is also true. It's most unlikely that we will be moving with him, that people will see the love of our Christ, of our Jesus, if we are not intimately connected through the vine and to him. Perhaps the most telling are Jesus' words when describing his intimate dialogue style with the relationship with the Father and how it impacted the way they served him are in John 8, 28 through 29. Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know who I am and that I do nothing on my own but speak just what the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. And again, in John 12, 49 through 50, he said, For I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. I know that he commands and leads to eternal life. And Jesus is saying, So whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. The Son did not do anything on his own. Also, he only spoke only what the Father had taught him, and only even did so and how the Father told him to say it. Jesus' oneness and uninterrupted communion with the Father enabled him to always please the Father. We looked at the Lord's Prayer this morning. The kingdom did come. His will was done on earth as it is in heaven, through Jesus Christ. 
In other words, when we're moving with God, as we've defined it this morning, was the outcome. People were saved. Jesus had one simple rule for life. Ask the Father. Inquire of the Father. He inquired every day, Father, what is your will for me today? I want to do your will. If you approached Peter, James, or John, and you said, hey, what are you guys doing here, hanging out outside Copernican? What are you doing outside this city? When are you planning to leave? They would say this. We don't know. We move when he moves. And we stay when he stays. Life gets really simple. How can we pray like this? So that we're in dialogue with God all the time. So that we're walking with him side by side and working out where to go next according to his will. It's through this prayer of inquiry. We have to ask him. What will you have of me? Jesus' dialogue, this relationship with the Father, there's a narrative detailing Jesus' prayers, which is very powerful in Matthew 26, beginning in verse 36. Gethsemane. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed. My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then returning to the disciples, he found them sleeping. Could you men not keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it's not possible for the cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Jesus' first prayer in Gethsemane. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but your will be done. Jesus' second prayer. He went away a second time and prayed, My Father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. His third prayer. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away once more, and prayed for the third time, saying the same thing. The single common denominator of Jesus' three prayers in Gethsemane is his resolute devotion to do the Father's will. There is a difference between the first prayer and the second, and the third is Christ acknowledging that it's not possible for the cup of suffering to be removed from him. Although the text does not contain an explicit answer from God the Father, there's intimacy there. We know that he is in communion with the Son. He's engaged with the Son, and they're talking about his will. Christ knew God's will, and it became his will. There's no other way to meet God's righteous demand for atonement with the sin of the world except for the cross and the resurrection. 
Mark 14, 36 says this. Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup. Yet not what I will, but what you will. No one understands better than God how difficult it can be for a human to embrace the will of God. And no human has suffered more in embracing the will of God the Father than God the Son. When Jesus calls us to follow him, whatever the cost, he's not calling us to do something he's willing, either unwilling to do or has not done himself. And that's your power and that's your peace. When you pray, transforming your will to his, Jesus shows up. I believe with all my heart that in Gethsemane, heaven and earth met. We have the privilege of coming the uniqueness of our God. He's transcendent, but we can also have this intimate relationship with him, and we get a glimpse of eternity in this passage and in this prayer. When you pray in dialogue with God and you inquire of him where you're going, you'll find something. He shows up. There's real communion, and it's powerful, and it's peaceful, and it's humbling. And his will for you is always the same thing. When Jesus is tested... When the religious leaders come and say, what is the greatest commandment? Trying to set up Jesus. Jesus defines the extent, the entirety of our existence on earth in terms of relationship. The greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's not just a love for God that can somehow ignore the needs of others because Jesus goes on and says, love your neighbor as yourself. That's his will. We are called to live for others. That's the larger redemptive story. That will mean death to self. That's the whole point. But don't be discouraged this morning because there's joy in that. That's the hope. Because Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours, we have life. We can live. We can live because Jesus prayed, not my will, but yours. That's why we can live for others. Because of Jesus' prayer. That's his will. How it plays out in your life will be unique in your work, in your family, wherever you are in your daily life, your home. But it's the basis of this. Love the Lord with everything you got. Love your neighbor. That's God's will. Our job is just to say yes. How does that look? What should I do? Where should I go? Not my will, but yours. Show me, God. You can be honest. You can be afraid. You can tell God your heart because you'll see God's will coming a mile away. That's how it works. God will put something in your heart and it will continue to grow and grow. And I know because I'm speaking from personal experience, you will try to deny it and you'll say, no, God, that's not what I want to do. God, you're wrong. I know that's not your will. Let me tell you what your will is, but it will persist. And as you inquire and say, what is your will? Something will change in your heart. When we join God the Son in praying to God the Father, your will be done. And if we find that in body and soul, everything in us is resisting because we see where his will is taking us, we can wholeheartedly pray with Jesus, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. That's honest. That's dialogue. But we can only do that if we pray these gloriously humble words along with that. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And as we think of the larger body, 
We are the hands, the feet of Jesus, and we are here Sunday morning in communion with God. We as Wyzetta, we're moving. We're in this series of prayer. We're asking of God. We're inquiring of God. We're trying to walk with God and be close to his heart to know where he will have us go. There's power in corporate prayer. Sunday morning is a very real and public way that we can commit things to God. It seems appropriate in this series on prayer that as we inquire of the Lord what is next, that we do it together. I'd like to close with us praying a prayer corporately. This prayer in Gethsemane to God. As a church inquiring of God, what is next for us? By praying together the greatest prayer ever prayed. By corporately pledging that we, Wazetta, as a church, as his church, are his. That we trust him, that we love him, that we give ourselves to him as a church. And I'll ask you to join me as we close the service with this prayer from Gethsemane. It's our pledge. Let's stand as we close the service. Let's pray together. Father, we want what you want. What will you have of us? Not our will, but your will. Amen.